Hey folks, this is Doug Thornell and welcome to another episode of the Electables podcast. Uh, just yesterday, the Electoral College met and made it official. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the next president and vice president-elect um, in the, for the United States of America. They won again. They've been winning over and over again for the last uh, few uh, few weeks, it seems like. Uh, the Trump team has been uh, losing court battles uh, all over this country uh, because they really don't have any, uh, they don't have anything to, they don't have any evidence of anything uh, wrong that happened. Uh, they are, uh, you know, really just crying about spilled milk. Um, and uh, Joe Biden won over 80 million, 80 million votes, 81 million votes. He got a... You know, uh, the uh, president got under 47%. Um, it was a pretty convincing victory from the popular vote standpoint. And he uh, also had a, a pretty convincing electoral college vote uh, victory. So um, one of the people who was so instrumental in um, Joe Biden becoming the Democratic nominee and then ultimately the, the president-elect of the United States is my next guest. Um, James Clyburn is the uh, majority whip, whip of uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, that makes him the third ranking Democrat um, in the House. Um, he is probably one of, probably the most decorated member of Congress uh, today. Um, he has been the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus. He has been vice chairman of the Democratic Caucus. He has been chairman of the Democratic Caucus. He has been majority whip on two different occasions, the first time in 2007 to 2011, and then the next, and then the next time um, he was uh, uh, majority whip. Uh, he, he's, he has served as majority whip since uh, uh, 2019. Uh, he was also the assistant to the Democratic leader uh, from 2011 to 2019. Um, he is the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Um, he's an author uh, and he is a kingmaker in South Carolina. Um, and um, I've known uh, Mr. Clyburn for uh, a, quite a long time. And, you know, the first time I, I met you, you, you probably don't remember this, but it was uh, 20 years ago uh, in Iowa, you came out to, uh, campaign for Vice President Gore at the time, and I was out there, and uh, that was the first time I got to meet you, and, um, you know, you've been a, uh, you and your office have been, um, you know, always very supportive of of, uh, of me and, and of uh, my brother, and um, you have been uh, someone who has always been there, and and so is your you know your your uh, your staff, your chief of staff, Yebi, who's a, a great guy, and so it's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. And you're right, I do remember coming out to Iowa. It was not uh, what I would call Southern weather. No. Nope. Uh, and uh, I've gotten you and your brother confused uh, one or two times. Uh, but well, good to be here with you. Everyone gets us confused. And we're very rarely in the same space at the same time. So not everyone knows that we're actually different people. But, right. um, <laughs> but um, look, I wanted to just start off. There's a lot of news going on and we're going to tackle that. But I want to just get going on. How did you, you, how did, how did you decide to pursue a career as a public servant? Well, I grew up in a little town of Sumter, South Carolina. Um, I grew up uh, 
well early in the 50s when uh, things were beginning to happen. Uh, the very first thing that um, uh, I can remember was the, uh, uh, the run-up to Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, the case was called Briggs v. Elliott, the very first case, Clarendon County, South Carolina. Uh, my father was a minister, <clears throat> and of course, Reverend Jay the land, and they and me minister uh, was organizing uh, people over in Clarendon County to challenge uh, the uh, segregated schools. Now, they were not really trying to integrate the schools. They were trying to get school buses uh, for black kids. Uh, and of course, uh, my dad uh, at breakfast uh, every morning would say a prayer for Reverend Jay Land and the people of Clarendon County. Uh, now, I'm growing up around all of that. And then, of course, that was just 20 miles uh, from my home of Sumter. Uh, that was happening in, in Sumter. And then my mother was very active. She was a beautician and very active in the NAACP. And one day, my moms came home uh, from the courtroom. What happened at that time was uh, the Southern states were trying to break the back of the NAACP. And they were suing all over the South uh, for defamation. Anything that was said at a rally, somebody would be offended and would go to court and knowing full well they're gonna win in court. Well, uh, an attorney named Shep Nash in Sumter, South Carolina, sued the Sumter branch of the NAACP for defamation. And a lawyer came to town named Matthew Perry uh, to defend uh, those NAACP members. My mother was raising money uh, to help hire that lawyer. Uh, and she came home one day and took me down to the courthouse. She said, I want you to see what you can be when you grow up. And what had happened was that um, Matthew Perry's presence in that courtroom uh, and uh, the way he carried himself on in that case. People from all over heard about it and people were flocking down uh, to the courthouse to see this black lawyer who was making mince meat uh, out of those folks in the courtroom. Uh, and that's, uh, I just got bitten by all of that. And lo and behold, I finished high school, go off to college I get involved in the sit-ins uh, and got arrested uh, in uh, March 1960. I met my wife in jail uh, after that arrest. Uh, and who comes to town to defend us? Matthew Perry. And Matthew decided that I needed to be put on the stand, not because uh, of who that I was smart or anything, but because I was insulated. My father was a minister, my mother a beautician, and they were not dependent upon the, uh, the established order of things. And so I became his star witness, he always said. Uh, and uh, that's how I got involved. Met John Lewis, March of 1960, that same year. I'm sorry, I met him in October of 1960. 
uh, and we spent the next 60 years as close friends. And you're now the majority whip. This is a position you've held for the second time. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> I'm sure someone will fact check me on this, but in my estimation, I think you are the most effective, accomplished <laughs> majority whip in the history of, uh, of, of, of so certainly the Democratic caucus, maybe Congress in general. And you and the speaker have formed a very uh, formidable team. I mean, I remember when I was on the Hill and I was working for Chris Van Hollen at the time when he was in the house. And um, that was 2009 and 2010. In the years before, I don't even remember you, I don't remember losing a vote except TARP, which I don't count. And so, because that was all on the Republicans. But um, how do you go about being a whip? And talk me, like, tell me about your day-to-day, -day, like what's your daily routine? Because you need to know about everyone. Right. Like that's how you're effective. Well, you're right about that. It is, it is the only vote we lost because, as you said, <laughs> uh, uh, we were a deal was made between us and the Republicans. They did not keep their end of the bargain. And so we lost that vote. But I came right back on Monday. Right. Uh, right. We, and, we, uh, we got it done. You got it done. Got it done. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for your help on that. Look, uh, you have to get to know your voters. Uh, the members must, you know, I, I try to learn everything I can about them. Uh, the new uh, people coming in. I've got one of these podcasts myself. Oh, and you I'm do? On, yes, and on tomorrow. Nice. Uh, guess who my guest is going to be? Who is uh, it? Co Corey Bush. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. The new, uh, new congresswoman. A new congresswoman. Uh, we uh, have different backgrounds, different experiences. Uh, we don't uh, see eye to eye. Uh, on some of the rhetoric that is being said, but we're going to talk about it on our podcast because I want people to understand that you don't have to always agree uh, in order to uh, uh, to get along and to uh, make things happen for the betterment uh, of the total body. Uh, so that's what I try to do. I try to get to know the members yeah. and know about their families, know about the, their uh, things they like, things they don't like, uh, and that where you know how to, uh, or you learn how to approach them uh, when you got an issue coming up uh, that you, you may need to do a little massaging on. So uh, that's the secret, if it is a secret, is just get to know uh, the members and try not uh, to do anything that will expose them to negativity. And so I say to the members a lot, uh, when I see something in the bill, I would tell them, I'm not too sure that you want to vote for this and yes, why? Uh, and sometimes I'll work with the members to uh, try to work out whatever uh, issues they may have. And that's, um, we just finished doing that with this uh, uh, NDSAA bill, uh, the mm -hmm. Defense Authorization Bill, because nobody got some language in there that's given some people some balls. So we worked with them and worked on their language and we got it to a point where it's accepted by both the House and the Senate and we were able to pass it. How has it been to be in Congress during this moment in time in the middle of a pandemic impacted so many of us? Uh, how has, you know, and it's impacted a lot of your colleagues too. Right? Sure. A number of them have, have gotten COVID, uh, but certainly how you vote, a lot of the, a lot of your regular routine um, has been disrupted. Um, and so how, how has that been? I mean, I, 
how has it been being a member of Congress during this COVID-19 era? Well, it's very challenging. There's no question about that. Um, uh, when you can't interact with members, uh, you have to get on the phone, you have to do what I call the Zooming, uh, yeah. sometimes necessary, uh, in order to interact with them. Uh, because uh, really, uh, you must do this, uh, the country's business. Uh, we rely upon what we call the essential workers uh, to go to work, uh, to take care of the sick, uh, many of whom um, will probably not recover. Uh, they are making tremendous sacrifices. So we can't feel sorry for ourselves. We got to do what we've got to do, uh, try to adhere uh, to the science, uh, listen to the doctors. I spent um, the first 30 minutes this morning with the attending physician, uh, making sure that uh, uh, my hearing is not uh, affected by this ringing in my ear. Uh, <laughs> so it's the things you just have to do. Uh, yeah. And uh, people expect for you to do your job. So we do it. So um, I'm going to get to the presidential politics and uh, the role you played in uh, helping uh, Joe Biden become the presidential nominee and ultimately win the presidency. But before I do that, what are the chances that Congress passes a, a relief package before um, the end of the year? We'll, we will. Yeah, we will. It's no question. The chances are great. It's not going to be uh, as much as I would want. Some of the things uh, that I uh, won't, won't be in it, uh, but we're going to pass something. Now, as Joe Biden has said, Often, help is on the way. Uh, hopefully, uh, a lot of things that we cannot get in the bill now, we'll be able to get in it after uh, uh, January 20. So we are going to pass something, and, and it's a bit late, uh, but better late than never. Let me ask you about um, the role you played in uh, supporting Joe Biden. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of endorsements, right? Some are inflated, underinflated, you know, sort of overstated, understated, right? And I, I, I remember when Ted Kennedy endorsed uh, Barack Obama, that was a big deal, right? There are a lot of other endorsements. Your endorsement of Joe Biden was a political earthquake in the sense that um, this was a state that Joe Biden absolutely needed to need, absolutely needed. And it came and your support came after three contests that Joe Biden lost. Now he did better in Nevada um, uh, than I think many people thought, but he lost New Iowa and then lost New Hampshire. Talk to me about the decision-making process that you, you went through uh, when you decided to, to endorse Biden. Well, the decision-making process started way back in July of last year. Oh, whenever I had my uh, my fish fry. Fish fry, yeah. Uh, it, it's about um, you know twenty some odd candidates there. Uh, and it was at the time uh, that my wife uh, was uh, illness was uh, uh, getting uh, severe, uh, and she did not attend the fish fry. Uh, so after the fish fry. And I got home and we were talking about all of these uh, 
candidates that we had. And she said to me, uh, she said, you know, uh, the Democrats' best bet uh, is Joe Biden. Uh, and my wife always had, a, a, I thought, a too high a respect uh, for the incumbency. Uh, she studied politics. She was never all that public. Uh, but she just understood how hard it would be to defeat an incumbent. And she said to me that Joe Biden was our best chance. Well, that stayed in my mind. She passed away uh, that uh, following September. Uh, and uh, here we are getting ready for the South Carolina primary some six months after she passed away. And um, the Friday before, uh, that debate in Charleston. I attended a funeral service for my longtime accountant. Uh, and when I got to the church service, uh, I went about 30 minutes early because uh, I went down to pay uh, my respects. And a lady was sitting on the front pew waiting on that service to start. Uh, there wasn't but about 15 or 20 people in the church at the time. And when I turned around, our eyes met, and she beckoned me over to her. And I went over, and um, uh, she said, I need to ask you something. And if you don't want anybody to hear the answer, lean down and whisper it in my ear. And she asked me, I need to know who you are voting for in this election. And I leaned down, and I whispered in her ear, Joe Biden. And she snapped her head back, and she had a look on her face, and she just said to me, I needed to hear that, and this community needs to hear from you. And I just knew from that, uh, these two experiences uh, with Emily and uh, Mrs. Jones, Janet Jones is the latest name. I didn't know her before that. I had to find out her name because <laughs> a lot of newspapers thought I was making the story up. Right. They, wanted, they wanted to meet her. So the Washington Post send a reporter down there, the New York Times. Uh, so she does exist. Uh, <laughs> I do know her now. Uh, and uh, that's what made me do it. Uh, and so that, um, that Wednesday after the South Carolina debate, I stood uh, in front of the microphones and I looked over to my right with two of my daughters uh, were sitting there and there was a chair between the two of them. And um, uh, often, when they would attend political events, uh, Emily always sat between the two of them. Uh, and uh, there was an empty chair there. And the emotions uh, just started to flow. Uh, I didn't have one single note. I just, I just spoke. Uh, and uh, everybody asked me what made me do it. I suspect Emily did. I didn't have a chance to know your wife, but I've heard so many amazing things about her and my deepest condolences to Thank you, you. And your family. Um, um, so tell me about your relationship with Joe Biden. I mean, because you, so you endorsed, now a lot of people endorse and they just sort of like go about their business, right? Yeah. You endorsed and then you just like got, you were, you were there, right? You were on board, you were campaigning Absolutely. as hard as anyone else. Yeah. That last stretch in South Carolina. And then you continued with uh, the sure. advisory role you played and playing a big role. And, you know, so tell me about the relationship that you have. You've obviously known Joe Biden for a while. Sure. Tell me about him as a person and, and your relationship with him. 
My relationship with Joe goes back a long ways. I mentioned earlier uh, Brown, uh, Brown v. Board of Education. Well, uh, the Brown v. Board of Education, a lot of people put that case out in, in Kansas. The fact of the matter is that was the lead name, but it was five cases. Uh, Kansas was one, South Carolina was one, one was coming out of Virginia, the Davis case out of Virginia, uh, the Bolton case coming out of Washington, D.C., but the case was coming out of uh, Delaware. Belton v. Gephardt was a part of that. And that was the foundation of the relationship I developed with Joe Biden. Uh, because Joe Biden started spending, uh, he spent more time in South Carolina than any state outside of Delaware. He would vacation in South Carolina every time he got ready to, to uh, uh, tone down a bit. He always went out to Kiowa Island, South Carolina. And so we just got to know each other. We would do um, TV shows together. In fact, uh, several times we did, um, uh, what was that show called? Uh, there was a night show, I forgot the TV show. Rose, Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose, yeah. Yeah, we did the Charlie Rose show together a lot. So I just got to know him. And um, I met him. Uh, right after he won re-election to the Senate, he came to South Carolina uh, at the behest of some people who saw in him a future president. And a lot of them tried uh, several times uh, to get him nominated. It just fell my lot to be in place uh, to give it one more shot. And this time it worked. Tell me about the night of the South Carolina primary. I mean, Joe Biden didn't just win South Carolina. He walked away with it. And right. it was a convincing victory, something we have. I mean, you know, obviously Barack Obama had a convincing victory, but then also it set the table for Super Tuesday. And I don't think anyone anticipated what would happen on Super Tuesday, but take me back like that night. I, I, I imagine that like, I'm sure you woke up nervous as any person would be when, you know, on the day of an election. But tell me about like when you learned about not only the victory, but the gravity of the victory. Well, it started really on my drive from that funeral service going down to Charleston because this funeral was like that Friday. Yeah. And so the debate was going to be the following Tuesday. And I was having this event uh, in Charleston on Sunday uh, out on the USS Yorktown. So on my way down there, uh, I could not get Miss Jenny Jones out of my head. And I'm saying, this lady, I got to do this. So I called. Uh, someone you know very well, Antoine. Uh, yeah, Antoine Sweetwright. Uh, right. Yeah, so I called Antoine. I said, Antoine, I'm going to make this endorsement, and here's what I need you to do. Uh, I need you to find somebody in Charleston. We need to get some some robocalls done. You need to get some uh, uh, black radio uh, ads done because when I make this endorsement on Wednesday morning. I need to go right away uh, with radio ads and uh, that's Wednesday evening, uh, I need to have robocalls done. So we did that. On Sunday, I met with Joe, uh, Joe Biden on the USS Yorktown. I told him uh, what I was gonna do, uh, told him what I thought uh, he needed to do to help me and make it work. Uh, and my whole thing was not to just endorse, but to create a surge. Yeah. And I said that on uh, a Sunday morning TV show. I think I was talking to Chuck Todd. 
<laughs> I said, I, I, I need to create a surge with this. I didn't want to just endorse. I wanted to win. Uh, and so uh, that's what we did. So that uh, Saturday night, the, uh, then the vote started rolling in. Uh, and I said, wait a minute. This is going to be big. Uh, and I kept my fingers crossed trying to get to 30. Uh, but it only got to 29. So he won by 29 points. Uh, I left next morning, Sunday morning. I was in Fayetteville and North Carolina and um, uh, not Jones. I forgot. Another, I went to the second town uh, up in North, North Carolina. Uh, Goldsboro. Yeah. Goldsboro and Fayetteville. And everywhere I went, people were talking about that endorsement. And then the results, the headlines were up there. Uh, Biden won South Carolina real big. And I, I called Antoine back. I said, Antoine, get those ads into Alabama. <laughs> get them down to Texas. Yeah, get them uh, everywhere. I said, it's going to work. Yeah. And that's what happened. Wow. I mean, it's, uh, it, I, I just can't, I, I mean, we, I cannot overstate how important that endorsement was um, for uh, that campaign at that moment. And then, you know, and, and, and I think after that, you know, obviously, you know, he went on to, you know, win the nomination earlier than Barack Obama did earlier than Hillary Clinton did. And then, you know, made history with selecting Kamala Harris. Um, and I thought ran a very, very, one, a very, very good general election campaign. But I, I feel like so much of it started with you and in, 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 in that in that moment in history. Um, I want to get your thoughts on on Donald Trump. He, it's coming. He, you know, things are we're, we're, we're getting to the end of his his presidency. Um, when you think back at Trump's time in office, you know, in four or five years from now, what's going to come to mind? For you? Well, I'll tell you um, how fragile our democracy is. Uh, I have been wrestling with that. Uh, it occurred to me, even during his campaign, something just kept gnawing at me that something about this is not quite right. You know, uh, you expect for candidates to nuance things. You, you, you expect a candidate not to tell the whole truth. Um, but you don't expect for a candidate just to look you in the eye when the facts are very clear that everybody can see and just lie. Just say anything as if it's true. Uh, you don't, it, you, you know it's not true. And I saw this happening even in the campaign. And then he just took it to another level in the presidency. And so, uh, as, as I said on Don Lemon's show the night before, uh, Biden's, I think it was his 2018 State of the Union address, uh, I said then that this man does not plan to give up the White House. Uh, he does not plan for there to be yeah, and election. And I remember Don Lemon asking me, are you, because uh, what I said was that I'm beginning to see uh, what was going on in Germany, how uh, Hitler was so successful uh, in taking over Germany. I said, I'm beginning to see it. And so he asked me on this show that night, 
Are you called, are you saying this man, compare this man uh, to Hitler? I said, no. Putin is Hitler. He is Mussolini. And that's what I said in 2018. It's kind of interesting when he came out of the hospital, uh, the COVID-19, uh, yeah. and he goes up on the Truman balcony. He stands out there looking out at people. And what did all the reporters uh, say the next morning? Call it a Mussolini stance. I was vindicated. Now, a lot of people gave me hell when I said that. Uh, they called me all kinds of names. But there was... Joe Scarborough and other people on TV the morning after referring to him as Mussolini. And I have heard it uh, several times recently. And so I, you know, I just saw this coming. I used to teach history. You know, I, I studied it all the time. And I just saw this. And when I look back on this, uh, this uh, president and said, uh, I'm going to uh, just say, uh, as I've been saying already, we came to very, very close, too close to losing this democracy uh, with this presidency. Sir, let me ask you this. If Joe Biden could accomplish one thing in his presidency, what would you wish that to be? If you mean beyond COVID-19, to me, that's number one. We got to get beyond this pandemic. And as chair uh, of the select uh, subcommittee dealing uh, with COVID-19, I've studied uh, what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. Uh, we were coming out of World War I. You know, I've studied the Truman Committee and what we did to try to stand up this economy uh, after World War II. It is what made Truman president. Uh, he got to be vice president uh, because of the work he did. Uh, and I've studied that. And so what I would like to see Joe Biden do is whatever is necessary to get us beyond this pandemic and wrap his arms around the biggest infrastructure package in the history of the country and define infrastructure in a way that it will do right by every community. That is to say, if you're gonna have uh, roads and bridges uh, done and you've got to have uh, it tax to do it. You can't just put money on gasoline taxes that rural people will pay uh, daily for and not get the just return. How, why should you ask a rural South Carolina person uh, to pay more for gasoline tax and then use that gasoline tax to do a transit system uh, up in New York uh, where nobody owns an automobile uh, and may not ever uh, so you'll be asking that rural person to pay for somebody else's transit. Let's put together kind of infrastructure package that everybody gets something out of. If you put broadband in there, treat broadband, uh, just like you, you know, it's the internet, we call it the information highway. So treat it like you treat the interstate highway. And then so that people know I'm, I'm investing uh, more money on my gasoline taxes, but I'm gonna get broadband. Uh, as a result of it. Uh, so that's the kind of infrastructure patch I want to see us put together. I've given him the outline, and then he has adopted, and we saw the other day, his nominee for Secretary of Agriculture has adopted uh, the 10-20-30 formula uh, that we created back in 2009 yep. uh, with the recovery package. 
That 10, 20, 30 was put into the recovery package. And a lot of rural communities got water systems that they've been trying for 40 and 50 years to get because now we're saying that if you are in a persistent poverty community where 20% or more of the populations and stuff beneath the poverty level for the last 30 years, at least 10% of this money that's being appropriated must be targeted into your community. That's what 10, 20, 30 is. 10% of the money must go where 20% or more of the populations been stuck beneath the poverty level for the last 30 years. And if you do that, he will be looked upon as one of the best presidents this country has ever had. Last question. Since you have the magic touch uh, with candidates and you can, uh, uh, and, and you, you seem to be the best handicapper that I know, Georgia's coming up, two special elections there, uh, two runoffs there for the Senate. Is Mitch McConnell going to be the majority leader after January 5th? Well, the chances are uh, in his favor to do so. What we will have to do in Georgia is to have an incredibly uh, big turnout of voters. It's kind of interesting. You're asking this question while I'm in the middle of writing an op-ed piece uh, for the Washington Post. Uh, and I'm dealing with that issue of what I call creative devices that are used uh, to suppress voters. Georgia has put creative devices on steroids. That's what Stacey Abrams has been fighting. If it was a fair fight, she calls her group fair fight. If this were a fair fight, we would win. What we got to do is overcome adversity beyond uh, fairness. Uh, if we can do that, as we did in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Georgia on November the 3rd. The reason they can't accept this defeat is because they thought they had wired it up. Yep. The rigging that they complained about, they thought they had it rigged. Right. And if you look at their votes, you can see what they did. It's just that we outperformed them. So in order for us to win uh, in Georgia, we would have to outperform them. Right now, we're not doing that. I'm looking at the lines and I'm not seeing the people in line that I need to see in order for us to win. Let's hope that after Christmas get behind us, uh, we can double, redouble our efforts and get it done uh, by the end of the year so that we can have a great day uh, on January 5th. The House Majority Whip, uh, James Clyburn, an American hero. Uh, like I said, one of the probably one of the one of the most decorated members of Congress in in recent history. Um, a kingmaker in South Carolina, um, and a, just a great guy, uh, and uh, really just you know someone who just uh, means so much to so many people around uh, both South Carolina and Washington. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Uh, thanks for having me. Tell Paul hello. I will. I will. Okay, buddy. Folks, thank you again for joining uh, me for another episode of The Electables. This was a special treat to have a um, an icon like Jim, James Clyburn on, uh, the Majority Whip. Uh, he was so generous with his time. And uh, and uh, you heard it there both on, uh, he, he seems pretty certain that we're going to get a relief package done. And then uh, obviously uh, he has talked about the importance of doing a big infrastructure bill uh, when uh, uh, President Biden takes uh, takes office. So 
hopefully both of those things happen. Um, everyone, I hope uh, you stay safe and healthy and uh, catch you next time.